Hey everybody, it is episode 15 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, this is Chris and I'm here with Steve. Hello people. How is everyone doing today? We are excited to be continuing our series on training principles. We started it with our very first episode where we gave an overview of the rogue training, five rogue training principles. We continued it with episode seven where we talked about miles matter and why that's important to get your mileage in. Then we had episode 10 where we talked about running by feel and how every day has a purpose. And we're going to close the series today with episode 15 talking about our last two training principles, which we'll get to in detail in a second. So I'm excited to finish a series, Steve. This will be good. But before we dive into that, we've got a couple of intro topics that we wanted to cover. The first is a sad one. Mm. We have to send our thoughts and prayers to the Whitlock family and say rest in peace to Mr. Ed Whitlock, the 86-year-old runner that we talked about in episode four of our podcast. He had just run at 85 last October, had run the first sub-four marathon for an 80-year-old, finishing that in the mid-350s. And then he is also the fastest 70-year-old Ever He ran a 255 at the age of 73, which might be one of the single greatest running performances of all time, inclusive of the marathon world record. If you look at the age grading like we talked about in episode four, Ed Whitlock sadly died of prostate cancer. And so we we were losing a running legend of sorts. He had 25 masters age group records for the marathon and was just one of those that you just they don't make them like that anymore. They sure don't. <coughs> the world is a different place. Men and women were raised differently. They they viewed the world differently. Um, I'm I'm I'll be surprised if the toughness quotient that uh, that he exhibited over his years is capable of being replicated. Um, anyway, it's a sad sad day for distance running. We were I was excited about what his 90s would would bring in a big way because I thought if this man can go under four, you know, in his in his mid to late 80s, maybe he could even do so going beyond that. But um, again, rest rest in peace to him and, and to his family. We uh, but again, you know, a lot of times funerals should be shouldn't necessarily be sad things for a man who was able to accomplish as much as he did in his life. Um, we should celebrate what he meant to the sport, what he means to the sport, and he certainly has motivated many of us, especially those of us who are in the master's category, to keep pounding the pavement. Yes, you can keep keep doing it for a long time if, if Ed Whitlock is any example. And he had a really yeoman's approach, simple, just did the work. He would go and run three to four hour runs <laughs> in the cemetery near his house on a similar loop, just just plodding and getting it done and and putting in the miles and and that's that's how he did it simple and and um without a lot of fanfare there's a blog actually that i came across a guy named pat butcher had the opportunity to meet with him in december pat butcher is a bbc producer and sort of media guy who is also a former a track runner and finished third in the uk national champs at one point back in the day so he, he does some running stuff, but he also now covers a lot of things with the BBC. But he had the chance because he found out Ed was going to be in London visiting his sister. So he had the chance to meet with them. And he wrote a blog after he found out that Ed died. And there's a couple just 
passages that I want to read because I think it really captures the essence of of added in his state of mind at that point in December he had to know that he had this affliction but he didn't let it on and so he, so here's what Pat Butcher had to say he said any other 85 year old would have been ecstatic to run sub four hours for a marathon as Ed did at the Toronto waterfront race last October but when I met him in in London in December he expressed disappointment and bewilderment in equal measure at which at what he saw was an appallingly slow time <laughs> for a man who had run 254 on the same course at the age of 73 so that gives you a little insight into what he thought about his his results it's a man but, who cuts himself zero slack <laughs> exactly yeah. so so then pat goes on to say he said ed said the that he had a complaint for which he was seeing his doctor but implied it was relatively unimportant his demeanor suggested the same and the fact that he was willing to spend time with me and then go on to visit some changing london landmarks Doubtless much, doubtless much altered in the 60-plus years since his immigration underlined that. Yet he did muse aloud as to why, in the last year, he had lost 7 pounds for an already body featherweight at 112 pounds. More news will develop in the coming days, but that London visit may well have been an impromptu one to see his younger sister for the last time. Wow. So there he was, probably knew he you know, had prostate cancer and was dying from it, but but didn't let it on and it didn't change his demeanor and in interacting with others. So I think that's just a testament to who he was. And again, RIP to Ed Whitlock. You will be an inspiration for us. One other toss in here. Don't fear the finger. <laughs> that's right. Definitely men go get checked, <laughs> go get your PSA levels checked. And, and yeah, if you need the digital exam after 40, you should be doing it every year. So RIP Ed Whitlock. The other thing we wanted to talk about in intro as we do is catch you up on some current running events. This past weekend was the New York City half, which is always the big half really of the spring. If you look across the globe and the New York Roadrunners do a great job with all of their races, but this is one that they bring a lot of fanfare to, always have a great field. And there's so many stories to unpack here <laughs> that I think if you're a casual fan that don't pay attention to these things, you're going to miss if you just look at the results or see some of the headlines from the New York City app. But there's there's so much here. We're going to spend a little time on it, so hopefully you can see how we look at these races as we dig into the results. But the first one to start on the men's side, or the, sorry, the women's side, we had, first of all, an amazing, amazing U.S. results in an always stacked field. We had the top two, Molly Huddle won, and that was her third in a row winning this race so she had the historic three-peat her training par partner emily sisson got second in 68 21 no relation by the way no relation to my podcast steve's partner here steve sisson i but, wish but emily sisson in her half debut came in at 68 21 the third fastest half debut now behind kara goucher and molly huddle her training partner and then amy hastings crag finished fifth and a solid 69 mid. So three of the top five women racing against a stack field. Edna Kiplagat finished fourth. She was your pick to win Boston. So she's four weeks out doing this as a prep race for Boston. And, and she finished in 69.37. But who so, was in seventh? So, so seventh was Desi. And, of course, you know, Desi finished in 71.05, which for her was about 35 seconds off of her PR. But tells you that she's primed and ready and um i'm sure that was run as a 
as, as a, a mar- controlled as effort. a controlled effort marathon goal. My guess is she's shooting for a two twenty two because two twenty four somewhere in that range. So. And anyway, we'll unpack that in a little bit. Yeah. Right? So yeah, I wanted to unpack the Boston runners separately, but but you mentioned a great point. A lot of the a lot of the Boston racers use this as a race prep, so we'll get back to them. But I wanted to go back to talking about Molly Huddle first of all, just incomparable right now in terms of U.S. women's distance running from 5K all the way to the marathon. Now at this point, no one and and really, if you look at her against world competition, it's the same. She is you know bar none the best. American right now when it comes to women distance running and did it again this time so congrats to her although her training partner Emily Sisson was only two seconds back it came down to a sprint finish not only was she two seconds back Chris but she she crucially as Molly said later in her interview she crucially had her on the ropes I mean Molly yeah. at one point in time basically thought she had to stay as close as she possibly could if if the thread got any further and it snapped she was afraid Um, and Emily probably didn't know this what happens when you have a world-class absolute hero of yours as your training partner in a race you never think through the process I I guarantee you Emily Sisson is not thinking the process all this is that I could beat my teammate she literally is just trying to run as fast as she can which of course puts way more pressure on Molly and less pressure on Emily but it also tells you how capable we're seeing with with what we're seeing with Emily Sisson and what we've seen what I think we're beginning to see out of Jordan Hesse uh, is some some young runners who are soon to be marathoners Uh, this looks to me like a let's move to the marathon step sooner than later for Emily hopefully that's what we're seeing Um, and hopefully doesn't wait as long as Molly did but this this announces Emily Sisson in my opinion what I've seen at the collegiate level I watched her um, compete recruited her in college for a little bit but she was going to Wisconsin she ended up eventually at Providence which which is where um, Molly was training and where some of the greatest runners and one of the greatest coaches on the women's side and one of the greatest coaches period is there Ray Tracy Ray yeah he's just amazing he does great work and he's got long-term vision with all of his athletes and he looks at it from a very long-term perspective Um, that training group right now is on fire and Emily's result to me is the one to watch here kudos to Molly but I think that all the all the women out there that are trying to be the best in the U.S. to say enough, not the world, they now need to be seriously keeping an eye on on Miss Sisson. And Ray Tracy's quote, her coach after this was that Emily is made to be a marathoner. So she, he has apparently recognized that for a while and has been grooming her to that transition. And so this was definitely a step. And so I think you'll see her there sooner rather than later. I predict New York City. Reading the tea leaves and having her here with New York Roadrunners. Yes. They're always really good about recruiting that next yes. wave of U.S. talent. So and I Ray would, has I been very right. careful. Ray, that, that's a, those are relationships that have been cultivated for for tens and for 10 and 20 plus years the relationships between coaches race directors and um, elite athlete coordinators all the sort of back-end stuff that puts these rate these runners on the race scene they've been making their plans these agents and everybody making these plans for a long time so I agree I think New York City Marathon 2017 we could see an Emily Sisson debut and I will tell you um, watch out what I'm, <laughs> I'm very excited to see it as, as sort of back and forth as I've been about Jordan Hesse I'm, I'm bullish on her but Emily, I watched her run all through college. The girl is built for the mar- There is no doubt she's built for it. And it's exciting to see her do that with this race. If you look back at Jordan Hesse's result in Houston, 68-40, which was then the third fastest debut. 
and her upcoming race in Boston, you sort of see that next wave of younger women's marathoners coming up, which will follow in the footsteps of, and I think you include Molly Huddle in that group to some extent because she just moved there, but following in the footsteps of Shalane and Kara and Dina before them. So you've got a nice young wave of U.S. women coming up in the marathon, which is exciting to watch. What a, what a great gift those women have given to the next generation. We haven't seen anything like this um, since this since the 80s, uh, and it's so exciting to see not only that women are competing at a high level, but we are competing for the best in the w- with the best in the world. Um, our men are still working to get there; um, they're getting there. We, but we don't have the depth that I think we're seeing in our young women at this point in time. But um, we're seeing some good stuff out of our men too. Yeah, speaking of the men, that's a good transition on the men's side. The U.S. men uh, did well, not quite as well as the women, but we did have three in the top ten at 6th, at 7th, and 8th place. Chris Derrick, who's been coming back from injury and only recently started looking at the longer distance, finished 6th in the 7th fastest U.S. half result of all time. So he moved into a top 10 sort of all time for the U.S. men, which, is, which was a big result. Then you had... Our man Noah Drotti, which yeah. we'll we'll talk about him in a second. I want to come back to Noah Drotti. He's a name that no one will recognize except for the sort of let's run aficionados, or of those the group. who watched the Olympic trials this year and <laughs> right. happened to watch the 10K because right. much much ado was made of him yes. for sure. He finished dead last in the <laughs> in the uh, Olympic trials 10K, and then Diego Estrada, who's had success at the at the in the past in the half. I think he's he's a top five U.S. all time in the half. He was eighth, so great results there. Also, some a couple of, you know an interesting race at the front. I don't want to neglect to mention you had Visa Lalisa who finished silver in Rio in the marathon. He won it in 60:04, but it was a sprint finish with the Scottish Callum Hawkins who was only four seconds back, and they came into the final stretch neck and neck. So really exciting race there and. And Lisa's story is a really interesting one. He famously flashed an X at the end of the Rio Olympics in protest to civil rights violations by the Ethiopian government. He did not go back to Ethiopia for fear of his safety. And only recently, early this year, was reunited with his family that met him where he's been training in Flagstaff, Arizona. So his story is a really interesting one because of his stand against civil rights violations in Ethiopia and the fact that he is now essentially in exile and can't go back for fear for his safety. So he, he won it and flashed the X again to finish the race in New York this past weekend. So congrats to him. Congrats to Colin Hawkins. who is an up and coming young Scottish guy, big baller. That man pushed the pace and pushed the race and made it. I mean, he'd run 60 before. I mean, 60, 60 minutes for a half marathon folks. That is just that is smoking legit. fast. That legit. is just really legit. We, I mean, we have only had one American ever go under that, and that was the great Ryan Hall. Um, and it, in, a, in a sense, that race that, that happened in that race, it was just amazing. Uh, I think while Callum Hawkins, all kudos go to him for making that race, in my opinion, you're seeing in, in um, Lalisa what I would call, what I've been lamenting, and many of many others have lamented for a long time, is where are all the rock star runners? And to me, while this guy is not a like a rock star from the sense of, you know, Angus Young and uh, screaming at the top of his lungs. He's one who the world can get behind. He's somebody who we can all look as a hero. 
if you consider what his training must have been like since Rio to come off of a silver medal, all the drama and all the problems and everything else he's gone. He said in some of his quotes afterwards, he's I've been running like a donkey. I've been running terrible. I couldn't get after it. Well, I, I dude, if, if yeah. I were his coach, I would have said, take a chill pill, relax <laughs> right. and do some miles. Right. And then, but to show that once he got reunited with his family and you see it, I think Ilya Kipchoge, when they get on a line again, there, there will be a battle. When and to me, those are the two greatest, two best America, two best marathoners in the world, in my opinion. Period. And until some others show it, um, you know, and that that bodes well for Galen Rupp, in my opinion. When you look at him, um, it, I'm I'm excited to see Lalisa's next four to five years. I think you're going to see some amazing yeah. things out of him. And he's going to be somebody who gives us a real chance. This is a better chance to raise the profile of marathoning than the sub two hour thing. Yeah. In my opinion, you're right. It is. It, and it is all the things that we really need in our sport. So I am saying I am, I've been a Lisa, fan for a while, but especially after Rio and now even more so as he went toe to toe, it doesn't diminish Hawkins's race. That again, big baller going against an Olympic silver medalist, running, trying to run away from him step for step for step. But I'll remind you, it's a lot easier for a 10K guy to run up at the marathon, up at the half, than it is for a half marathon from a marathoner to come down to the half. Right. So um, again, great race. Both those races were great races. And Elisa's story is just a great one. So if you haven't seen more on that, look it up. His stand against what Ethiopia is doing with the government is really something to get behind. But let's come back to our, our guy, Noah Drotti. Okay. He's, he's, if you may have seen pictures, if you saw the 10K trials, you would have, you would have, uh, you would know his story perhaps a little bit. But long hair, wears a backwards hat, sometimes with cheap sunglasses. So he's a guy that's sort of rugged around the edges, you can tell. And, but had an amazing breakthrough race here in new york really it started back in october when he ran the u.s 10 mile champs finished second to sam chalanga there that he'll he'll even admit was sort of a breakthrough race for him it kind of told him he can run with the best of the best and then here in new york he went out with the best of the best and improved his half pr by a minute and a half from what he had run in houston and nearly two minutes from his pr from last year so huge breakthrough and if you look at his progression from three years ago, 2014, his half PR was 108.40, and he just ran 61.48, 101.48 in New York this past weekend. So he's made massive gains and is a guy to get behind because he's totally a blue-collar runner, went to a D3 school, DePaul, in Indiana, came out of there with no fanfare, didn't really even train full-time when he came out. He, he went to work in Chicago initially for an internship and then ultimately decided to move back to Indianapolis and how his move it to move to Boulder to run with Roots Running Project. And so he's just a blue-collar guy who just works hard. And I wanted to share a little bit of a clip from an, uh, an interview, oddly on Deadspin, <laughs> that I read that I read you don't see much on running in deadspin but this is a guy who has sort of a profile that fits because the first thing he asked about after his New York race, race was where the closest beer was <laughs> but on his his social media profile his moniker says professional amateur distance racer <laughs> and so somebody recently on deadspin asked him what he meant by professional amateur distance racer and this is what he had to say which I think is fitting 
It says, he says, yeah, I live a fairly professional lifestyle. Running is the main focus of my days, but amateur because no one is paying me to do it. <laughs> I guess I'm an extreme hobbyist, if you will, <laughs> since I'm not really getting financial gain from it. I say racer rather than runner because we're there to race, not just run. I wrote it that way because I don't want anyone to think I'm something I'm not. I mean, I run part-time in that right now the bulk of my income comes from my two other jobs. I like to think that I'm a, a true professional as a runner. As far as sleeping on the floor, he was answering another question earlier uh, that came earlier that he didn't get to. He says, as far as sleeping on the floor, I had this king-size mattress, but when I changed houses, it wouldn't fit. <laughs> so I slept on a camping pad on the floor for quite a while. Recently, my coach gave me a mattress, which is also on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so it just so it just shows you the kind of runner that this guy is. Well, I think it's his sense of humor. I mean, that, that to me is, again, it... it it, we need more rock star runners, so keep bringing it, Noah. By the way, his uh, Twitter handle is "I Built the Ark," which <laughs> tells you exactly how what kind of sense of humor this guy has, and the fact that he loves a pint of beer. You know, who's going to say anything bad about that? Well, so. he talks in the interview about how balance he think is he thinks is important. You know, yes. he's 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 all in on running, but he has to have balance, so he likes to have a good time too. Although maybe less than he did when he wasn't competing at this level. But the other thing to mention about Girardi is that he recently moved to Boulder about a year ago to train with a fairly new group. Richie Hansen is the coach. Mm -hmm. I'm not hugely familiar with him, but it's this Roots Running Project group. They are built on a V-Hill philosophy. Mm -hmm. We mentioned V-Hill in our Miles Matter episode, so I think this is a good kind of connection to what we're going to talk about later with the training principles. But and at the time he came to the group, he was a 108 or, or a little bit less than that, maybe half marathoner, had no real impressive results, but he was running a relatively low mileage schedule for somebody that was doing half and half, half distance racing. So, so Richie said, Hey, if you can get here, come on out and has, has added miles to his schedule. Now he's doing 80 miles a week, sort of building. Mm hmm. But obviously, you know, V Hill famously, as you quoted him, you know, yep. says if you're going to run marathons, you need to be over 100 a week. So obviously they're building him, but he's added a bunch of volume to his training and that's had big results. So yeah, just I, another example. of You know, we watched Becky Wade run um, at Houston and, you know, she moved up. She's, by the way, Becky Wade ran at, the, at Rice University, Chris's alma mater, um, <clears throat> the absolute... Uh, one of one of the great places in Texas to run if you're a distance runner. An incredible coach there, and incredible, incredible history there. And, but she moved away from her coach, who had been coaching her for a very long time. I know she was extremely hesitant to leave, and uh, she went up there because the system was built on a similar model to what she was doing. Um, her coach at Rice was heavily, heavily influenced by V Hill, probably the most V Hill influenced coach I've ever spent time with. Um, um, and that's Jim Bevan. That's Jim Bevan. And, you know, he's uh, who we should have on this podcast at some if point. He would be him, a great. Be awesome. he, oh, I think we could. But um, anyway, I, I just th I see I see good things happening in that group. I see the people who are there are the right kind of people doing it for the right kind of reasons. It's sort of an antithesis of the sort of Nike model that is that is out there right now of swallow up the fastest. Um, this is a, a model we tried to mount, match here at, at Rogue when we had a post-collegiate group for a little bit was build build them. Um, and uh, I'm very happy to see American distance running having some great success with, with tried and true principles in a, in, a, in a sort of amateur 
professional amateur racer mode, right? <laughs> to quote, yes. to quote, to quote, <laughs> <Yes>. Mr. Dotty. <laughs> so yeah, so that's Noah Dotty, guys. Check him out and follow his story. I think eventually he'll move up to the marathon, and it'll be interesting to watch. So one but, last shout out I want to make about the ha- the, uh, uh, the the half at uh, <clears throat> New York. Chris, watch out for Chris Derrick. I think if he's gone oh, yeah. to the half here. He, he's also built for the marathon. His mentality is built for the marathon. And I think I think that annou- his race there, that is a key announcement of uh, what I consider um, a very, very keen person to keep an eye on for marathoning in the future. He's someone who could give Rupp a run for his money. No doubt. That sure. is, and he has done it on and off. They have gone toe-to-toe. There is no fear factor there. And I, I'm very excited to see Chris not only come back, but come back in this kind of a way bodes very well for American distance running, especially American, mar- American marathoning. And so hopefully in that with Rupp and Derek, maybe Jurati and, and a few others, you have the next wave of U.S. men's marathoners coming in the wake of Hall and Meb. Speaking of Meb, I wanted to close out this bit on New York Half talking about some of the Boston runners. And as you know, as a coach and as I know, if you're racing four weeks out, from a marathon you're usually not expecting a, a half pr usually it's a sort of a, a race prep you're in heavy training you're you're doing your longest long run somewhere near that prior to your marathon and so it's usually not a race where you see folks four weeks out doing big things and that held true in new york you had a bunch of boston runners there that were not quite at the top of their game abdi ran 63 20 jared ward who is an olympian both those guys mm-hmm. olympians um, also in the mid uh, 6320s, Meb ran 64.55, although it's hard to say how much he's really putting into these final two uh, victory laps at Boston and New York. Desi was 71.05, which I think is, is actually pretty good for her, only about 35 seconds off her PR. Kip Lagat was pretty well off of her half PR in 69.37, fourth overall, which mm-hmm. is impressive, but that's <laughs> how impressive she is. And then, and then you had a few others. Also, we should mention Scotty Mack, who we had on episode nine. He ran a solid, I think, 18th in 104.16. I know he wasn't happy with that result, but I think if you look at it in all, in all things considered, I think that bodes well for what he's got coming in Boston. He also recently announced a new sponsorship with Tracksmith, so shout out to Scotty there. Congrats, Scotty Mack. So just wanted to mention a few of those folks that we'll talk about again in our next episode on looking Boston forward to that one that has some implications for that podium so so anyway that that's sort of our discussion on new york city half that's way more than you probably wanted to hear but as hopefully you got we wanted to tell you more yeah, we so wanted to lucky. tell you more so that's <laughs> hopefully that gives you a sense for if you just unpack the stories behind some of these races and get underneath the results and then there's just so much richness in there and kudos to the new york roadrunners for trying to get those stories told this was televised, by the way, in New York, and some of those stories were able to come out on the live on the live simulcast there in New York. So, kudos to them for what they're doing for our sport because I think they're may, maybe one of the best organizations in the U.S. That's a champion for for distance running in the U.S. So, and you know, half of our mission here is to educate you and introduce you to new concepts and new ideas about training, um, about mechanics about a wide variety of things. But honestly, I think Chris and I both have, the other half of is an ulterior motive, which is to do our small, our small part in creating an, a new distance running renaissance in the United States. 
this is our small way of doing it is to try to turn you into a fan. I'm not, we're not going to stop. So if you don't like it, turn us off. (laughs) If you like it, then dig a little deeper here. Or if you think you don't like it, dig a little deeper and give us a chance. We know what we're talking about. We got our shit together, folks. We've been doing this for a long time and we're both super fans. I'm just going to toot us or toot our horn a little bit here and say, don't just, we need you to be a fan. If you're a fan, it continues to raise the water. And guess what happens when the water raises? All boats rise. So come on, folks. Come along for the ride. Come along for the ride. All right. So let's dive into our main topic. As I mentioned at the top, we are going to finish out our series on training principles. We started with episode one. And then there was episode seven and 10 where we drilled down into those training principles. If you haven't listened to those, it's okay. This one can serve as you sort of starting from the back and then working your way forward. You don't need to necessarily have heard us to get the the context for today. But I do encourage you to go back and listen to one, seven and 10. I think you'll find those informative as well. But we're going to be closing it out. We're talking about our last two training principles. Those are as follows. The fourth and the first we'll talk about today is that peaking is important. You can really, in our philosophy, only peak two or three times a year, and you should be building to those peaks in order to get the most out of yourself versus trying to kind of be the same fit year-round. That's point one, which we'll talk about today. And then our point five and point two for today is the importance of group training and how you really can't achieve your best results unless you're training with a group and ideally with a group that's coached. So we'll dig into those. As we start this out, I wanted to come back to an analogy I I heard you tell a long time ago, and you'll remember this, but it's been probably five years. We used to do an annual coaching school, and periodically we come back to some of those elements, but you let off a coaching school talking about some foundational principles for training, and this is an analogy you used. Oftentimes when people talk about peaking, they use the pyramid analogy which is that the bigger the base of the pyramid, the higher the peak. And I think generally that works from an aerobic development standpoint. The bigger your base, the the more miles you put in, the higher your peak can be. I think conceptually that works. But you used a different analogy in this talk, which I think is actually more accurate overall. It's the same concepts, but more accurate, which is that really you should think about your training, your fitness like a wave. And the bigger the base of the wave, the further that wave can crash up onto shore. And the reason you use there, the the subtlety you made in the distinction between those two is that with a wave, it's a little messier. You never know exactly (laughs) how far it's going to hit up on shore. But inevitably, the more water you build into the base of that wave, the further it's going to go onto shore. And that's the kind of concept that we're talking about with this idea of peaking. It's like you want to build a big base of water in the base of that wave so that you crash as far up on the shore and get the most out of yourself as possible. So we'll start with that uh, memory. What do you think <laughs> about those analogies and how would you kind of bring it back around to to how you think about it today? You know, I had forgotten about that analogy, but as I'm, I'm going through my final prep with many of my athletes getting ready for Boston... Um, we did a, we did a really messy, big, giant Hokusai wave, baby. We were, we're, and, and I have some, and I have some fallout from that. I've got some people who the wave got too big for and, and they're blowing out. Um, and you know what? They got big goals. They got big dreams. And so sometimes that happens, but I still, I still think that, so it's just fitting and interesting to hear that because at this point in time, 
I'm not worrying about my athletes that are dialed in and all are all ready to go because, you know, the energy flow is good. What I'm trying to do is those ones who are not having such a great race because it is a messy and they're not in a, in a prep phase where the base or the, whatever issue has, has come up is causing them some problems. Um, I'm trying to fix those as we've got this limited window of time to try to make those patches to get us to where we need to. But, you know, a great surfer can surf damn near any wave. And um, that's what we're trying to do in this podcast is to try to get you guys to understand these basic concepts and to get you to see that it's still a self-coach process whether you have a coach or not. You know, we'll talk a little bit more about this in point two with group coaching, but I'm still a very big proponent for self-coaching within the group coaching group mindset. And behind this is that in my basic viewpoint, this crucial critical thing is um, you gotta have a. You've got to have one performance that you're preparing for. One big thing. Those guys that decide to take that huge wave, they know they may. It may take them hour, an hour or so to get back out to the next set. And so they're gonna take that wave for all it is, no matter how messy it is, now how many be- how beautiful it is, and they're going to make the most of it. And so, folks. Yes, if you're going to do a periodized, periodized program and you follow the first few steps that we talked about, here's the spot where setting up yourself, whether it's at the beginning of it or later in your, in your, in your macro cycle as you're preparing for your race, setting yourself up for the big, hairy, audacious thing. You know, we talked in mental training about setting these big goals and having big goals. The key to that, sort of the bell ringer for that, is picking a race that you're going to get excited for. Because if you don't, you're just going to pick up every little 5K, 10K, half marathon, trail race, whatever that comes down the pipe, and you're going you're gonna to have a problem. You're not going to ever be able to, to take this sport and turn it into art. And honestly, at the end of the day, that's what this is. Setting this command performance is moving beyond running and turning your sport into performance art. Seriously, that's getting a little left, left there. It's getting a little weird and a little wonky, but it really is. It's taking and saying, I'm going to put my self on the line. I'm going to put it out on the chopping block because I'm going to set some big goal, some command performance. I'm going to get ready for it. If you're not doing that, folks, in my opinion, you might as well do the Town Lake Shuffle, which in Austin we talk about four miles or seven miles or ten miles, and that's all you got because that's all that matters. Sure, count your calories. It's cool. How many heart? How much your heart rate go down? I'm not. I'm. I'm not poo-pooing that generally, but we don't do that at Rogue. Right. We set big goals and we set them in chunks and we go after them because we want that experience of fear on top of the wave, however big it is. And you know what? Yeah, sometimes you blow out. Sometimes you get the wave to come right down on top of you. But guess what? The real surfers, they paddle back out. You know, they, re- <laughs> they go back in, take care of themselves, paddle back out. We're getting new layers on the analogy. <laughs> I love it. So you use the term command performance, and that's a word if you train with Steve that I've heard hundreds of times because the idea is you have to pick a race and go for it and go for a big goal. And that there really is only space for two or three of those at a year max. Certainly no more than three. So... What is a command performance? I know you've touched on it a little bit already, but let's define that a little bit further. A command performance is simply the race you want out of that macro cycle. Um, anything else, any other workouts, any other long runs, any other workout long runs, any other races, any other, every single thing is in service to that end goal. So while in life I am not a big believer in the ends justify the means, in 
In this case, it's absolutely true. In my view, running, the end justifies the means. The problem is those means need to be small, manageable, minimal variables so that you can get the result that you want. But a command performance is the one that makes your sphincter pucker, the one that makes you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get yourself where you need to be. It's the one that makes you suffer through 100-degree 100 degree you know, humidity days when it's 80 degrees outside as we have in the summer here in Austin, Texas. Um, if you don't have that command performance, it's really hard. This ties in really neatly and nicely with a lot of what we've been talking about with our mental training. Um, I love it when that happens, but it is, it is, it is the actual training principle that fits in with that mindset approach. So it's just simply and basically putting where your money, money where your mouth is and choosing one race. And I'll tell you, this is not just a marathon training approach. It's a most effective for marathon training. In fact, if you're a marathoner, there is no option other than the command performance option. I'm sorry. It's period. But the half and the 10K and the 5K, if you're trying to run your very best at those, I still highly suggest and think and believe truly in the, in the command performance view. Of course, you can have you can have the setups for your command performance be uh, a little higher and a little peaked a little bit more. But ultimately, you're trying to have that great race on a given day. And that means there's logistics you got to take care of. There's mindset you got to take care of. There's all these other pieces that we have to take care of. But ultimately, it's saying putting all your marbles in for one race. So physiologically, why is that important? I know we've talked to touched on the mental elements already, but physiologically, why is that important? Because if you have too many, if you have too many races that you consider a command performance, you can't string the kind of training together that's necessary. That's point one. So you cannot get the, the kind of quality workouts in because every time, because your races become your workouts. Um, I am not a proponent ever of races being workouts. Okay, I will occasionally use a race to get a training effect because in marathoning, it's a whole lot easier to run 20 miles and a water-stopped race with full water stops and a bib on your chest and the road's closed and everything else. And it's a hard, hard to do these race preps that we do on a consistent basis here with no roads closed and traffic and multiple hills and no water stop. I mean, the best way to prepare for a race is to run one sometimes. But that race is... It should either be a race or you, you know what you're trying to get out of it. Um, this idea by and what happens with people when they race without having it be a training thing is that people get excited for every race that comes down the pike. And that means that your coach or yourself is going to have to adjust for that effort level. While the best 5K workout you can ever do is a 5K race, you need to recover from the 5K race for at least seven days in my opinion and maybe some cases 10 days depending on how hard you ran in a 10k same probably five days maybe up to 10 days that you need to recover in a half marathon if you go after it and give a full race effort for half marathon it's 14 days to recover from a half marathon at a full effort guess what that means we we missed a lot of training opportunities we missed a lot of other physiological boxes that we could check off you missed your anaerobic threshold workout you missed you missed aerobic power you missed all the other things that are super important as we've talked about the layering of different energy systems in terms of training appropriately, you've missed those because you're in recovery mode. And that's overvaluing uh, um, an unimportant race effort. And believe me, in my time of coaching now at, of the uh, sort of recreational runner or the advanced recreational runner, um, overracing is an absolutely inherently chronic problem. Um, one of which for many years I was considered a complete and utter asshole because I would 
refuse to let athletes raise. And if they did, I would fire them from my group. Um, I'm not that way anymore. I'm way more laissez-faire. I know what the best route to get to the road that they want to get to the place that they want to, but I'm a lot less draconian about how I'm going to get there. But at the end of the day, when they over-race, they don't succeed in our program because we're going for one big race. And so finding, and once they get into our workouts and realize how tough the workouts are, I, some of my athletes still race nearly as much as they did, but they're going into those races with completely different approaches. And at that point, it's no longer a race, okay? You're so using it as a tool. I'm using it as a tool, exactly in right. In the spectrum. And that's, and if you, if the, this doesn't make sense, I would say go back and listen to episode 10 again because we talked about every day has a purpose and periodization and why as you build yourself in a training macro cycle, you have to work different energy systems at different times in order to get the outcome you want at the end and so that leads into building to this peak performance so that you can get the best out of yourself on a given day now some people will say hey i ran four marathons this year and i pr'd in all of them doesn't that work too and what i would say to that person is that they didn't get the best out of themselves in any of those races that they could have if they'd focused on one gotten a better result than all four if they'd simply allowed themselves to sequence their training properly versus disrupting it with this constant race seeking yeah. that we like to do. Yeah. You know, I think that, so the part of the problem there is that most of the folks that are choosing to do that are pretty new to the sport. Um, and I don't think you nor I, Chris, who have coached many, many beginners would ever want to steal that sort of initial passion that they're getting out of running sort of like I'm going to get a little crude here but it's a little bit like when you when you first meet the the one the the you know in our my case a female the the one and and you know you go hot and heavy for a good long time and there's no stopping it there's no periodizing that passion you just hit it while it's hot you know <laughs> it's just the way it goes and so initially when people get started running I don't I would never want to to stymie that initial passion but if you want to have a long term relationship with the sport it's very similar to having a long term relationship with it with 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 a with a mate it's you still need those big those big moments that, that, that really lift the result, the relationship to the next level. It, but you just can't afford on a day-to-day basis that kind of, the kind of lifestyles that we create. You just can't afford to, to do that on an on a everyday basis. And anybody that's been in a relationship for anything longer than three years knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know, and it's, it, those analogies, those, those are really analogous in a, in a real way of saying you find the long, steady approach towards, towards peak performances that will allow an even greater response. But we don't want to steal that initial phase that people have about that you know i think that's important and we've talked before about how your running development is a years-long process if you're really committed to developing your aerobic system and changing the inside of your body like we've talked about before now the challenge with that is that your fitness at least the outcomes that you feel and experience in your day-to-day runs is not linear perhaps Physiologically, there's some linear components in terms of building mitochondria and things like that. But your fitness and how you feel when you're running is not linear. And after you have a big peak result, inevitably, your body sort of has a little bit of a letdown. So I think a lot of people get frustrated when they have a big result. Three weeks later, they can't do the same workouts they were doing six weeks before, three weeks prior to their big race. And they think, I've lost it all, not recognizing that. Fitness building is a nonlinear process because you have these ebbs and flows where your body needs a break and kind of needs to reset. 
And then once it resets, you have to rebuild in sequence. You can't take shortcuts. Correct. I mean, <clears throat> one of the one of the things that we've used before in uh, in in the ways of aligning, outlining this for our coaches, as we you know you alluded to earlier that we had a coach that we have a coaching school. One of the things that we do is I'll draw on a on a whiteboard um, a line that looks like just a steady line that moves um, from left to right in an upward forty five degree angle right sort of like if you got a return on your investment and it looked like that it would be phenomenal right, right. and they'll show that and if you stand far enough away from that it looks like a very straightforward lineal progression you know and sort of straightforward but going up but as you dial into it and you get closer you'll see um that mountain is full of a little lot lots of little high points and troughs and high points and troughs of varying levels and some of them are plateaus you know a, a high point that stays a midpoint for stays at that point for a long time we start to call a plateau you'll get closer to that line and you'll see that there's a lot of variation going on in there there's good days and bad days there's there's injury and illness there's feeling amazing with great weather and having a having a streak but all of those stepped back from a big macro view will look Look should look with a command performance type model that we're talking about um, as a as a pretty consistent progression forward. But as you get closer, it's nothing. It's not linear. It's not the same thing. You know, it's something much more varied and and idiosyncratic and really kind of kind of up and down. And so um, I can't show you that uh, on a podcast <laughs> in a visual. But you know that that is if you can get my get my drift there. We have a blog on it. I'll link to that has the visual. So it, it really is a lot of the way that that this happens. And um, command performances are about knowing there's going to be drama, knowing there's going to be ups and downs, knowing there's going to be all of that, but still staying true from a training perspective in terms of the kind of work that you do and from a mental perspective in terms of the way that you approach. Um, and, and honestly, from a, from a real worldview perspective of how you are experiencing the act of being a human being, in this case, we're talking about the act of being a human being as a runner moving through space, but it's really applicable to that process too. So those of you out there who are listening to this podcast, not to get faster, but maybe listening to it to sort of get a little wisdom there it's a little like the Tao, right um it's a little like you never step in the same river twice it's it's uh it's a beautiful concept um while you can still experience that i still think you need you need the dark to have the light you need the light to have the dark and that's what command performance is to to in my mindset so going back to the mental element there is also a component here that it's difficult to stay mentally on and mentally and to keep your edge consistently. And so sort of building that to a command performance, not only physiologically, as we just discussed, but also mentally is really important because you only have so much capacity to really do that. So talk about that. Well, I think this is the point that people really fail to understand, especially our runners who, who have been, who, who, those runners who get into a groove and start to see that improvement. As soon as they finish the race, they think, Wow, I just ran. Let's just take a time out of the of the clear blue sky. I just ran three thirty for the marathon. Um, I was a three forty five marathoner. I can be. I, they just 
do the numbers. I can be a 315 marathoner very soon. And if I'm your coach, I'll be like, I think you can actually run three hours, but you just <laughs> got to take the time to do it, right? So, right. But they get ahead of themselves, and they miss the key point here. The point of having a great race is to savor the experience or to rue the experience, as the case may be, but to give it its time. So you have to have that big experience and then give yourself two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to, decomp- to recover, decompress, reset, rebuild, and refocus. And you now you get yourself in a position where it's now beginning to do what nature or your body or if you want to get mystical, the universe wants of you to do with your running. And if you listen to it, by having these command performances, it gives you the, 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 the right to have the post-race party, to have the, post, the post-race letdown, to have the experience of just doing nothing for a little while. And you know what? Many of the running, many folks that I know in the running world, they don't do that. They got to be back at it. They got to get their 10 miles in the next Monday or the next Tuesday or Wednesday. And I'm telling you, that's not a good approach. It's way better to go big and then rest and recuperate or party like a rock star. I don't care how you do it. <laughs> just do it. And I think that that's a, when I when I meet the average everyday runner and I hear them talk to me about where they're at or even some advanced runners who come to us uh, having been self-coached or doing what they're doing, uh, the first thing I recognize is not an appropriate decompression time. The reason they're not having an appropriate decompression time, in my opinion, also is because they did not have a big enough command performance. If you have a big enough command performance and you succeed at it, you will be exhausted and you will need the recuperation and recovery. If you have a big enough command performance and you fail, you'll be depressed and you will either want to get after it so fast that hopefully you have a coach or someone in your life who will back you off, or you won't want to touch it for an exceedingly long time. We have a, we have a, 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 both of us have a friend who's been running with us for a little while. He joined us relatively recent. His name, recently, his name's Colin Bell. He's in a dark night of the soul right now. He's, he has been having a real struggle because, in my opinion, he strung so many races together for so long and was seeing such incredible improvement, but he failed to give himself the sort of two-week, three-week, four-week downtime that he needed, whatever was appropriate for him. And in my view, frequently, he would just jump back on the boat, right? Just get right back on the horse because the excitement of improvement and seeing that improvement was moving to the point where he's, we've now had to put him on ice, right? right. I mean, he's in a, he's in a, he's in a mode where he's got to choose. And, and to his credit, he took a while to try to figure out how to do all that. But to his credit, he's, he's, he's listening for his own sake and figuring out his own way of processing and going through it. Um, Another athlete who joined us at the same exact time, who was a friend of his, is about, in my opinion, to have one of the best Boston marathons he's ever had. But he was recogni- he recognized while he had all those same type A personality traits, he was also really capable of taking the downtime when he needed it and listened to his body just enough. This is not a value judge on these two individuals. This is really, truly just the way people look, the way that people who don't have a proper framework for what training and real training principles are, they don't get it. And they just think you can keep shoving it in and shoving it in and shoving it in. And it doesn't work that way. You've got to take the time off. I had an example of a runner who ran in Houston. She was going for a Boston qualifier. Her goal for that race was a five-minute BQ so she could get in and register for 2018 Boston. She ended up BQing, but by less than a minute because it was miserably warm day in Houston. She ran an unbelievable race ran a negative split, closed it out as best she could and and may have been going deeper than I've ever seen anyone go 
in the final few miles of a race when I saw her that day. Got her BQ. You know, the next day she's asking me about a race in August to try to get her BQ down enough to get into 2018 Boston, knowing that her 45 seconds or so probably wasn't going to be enough. And I just shut it down. I said, nope, I'm sorry. I'm not letting you do that under any circumstances. Because one, as you said, she had just had a command performance and she got the most out of herself that day. And it was going to take her time, I knew, mentally, not only mentally, but physically because of the heat of that day to reset and recover and then rebuild again. And August would have been way too soon, even if everything was perfect to try to do that. But then the second thing I told her, I said, look, if you're concerned about running 337 or 336, then okay, August might be interesting. But as I look at you and as I've seen from her progression, she came to me as a 420 marathoner. Like You can run a 315, a 310, a 305, three, three hour marathon to a point where this 340 or 335 arbitrary threshold that is your BQ is going to be irrelevant when we really get to your potential. So stop worrying about it. Yeah, we're I got not, to be not in any rush. I got to be at the finish line. I know the athlete which you're talking in. Yes. I got to be just after the finish line. I was actually at Houston. I got to be in the in the in the sort of family reunion area, um, and she was she was distraught. She was upset, and uh, I remember telling her, "You should feel all those things. You should be <laughs> yeah. angry. You should be upset. You should be frustrated. But you also should recognize what you did." And, and she got that intellectually. She's smart. She's she did. She's a smart cookie. And she, she listened knows. to me, by the way. And she obviously, well, I got to. Then I was <laughs> going to say that and I got to see her a month later here at, at at Rogue on a Saturday morning when she got to start her run at seven o'clock rather than at the that same time that all the rest of the people in your crew who are gearing up for a spring marathon are all. Yeah locked and loaded and you know she was like i feel better now i'm ready i'm ready to go what's the next thing i've got a bigger vision i've got a bigger purpose and you know it's it it i'm grateful sometimes for our roles as coaches because they allow us to use this little microcosm of running to, to to talk about bigger pieces and when you get to see the athletes that actually take that in and recognize it as sort of a philosophical gem rather than just a training principle. It, it, it's, it's really moving and, and it makes the job worth, you know, all the big bucks we get paid doing it. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah, she listened and she's going to get to where she wants to go faster, I think. And ultimately in the long term, because she, because of this patience, we don't always need to be in a hurry. Now, the other thing that you touched on, the, the kind of last thing I wanted to cover here before we move to the final principle, you talked about fear. A big thing that I think holds people back from committing to this idea of the command performance is fear of putting all of their eggs in a single basket. People love their plan Bs, as we talked about on episode 13. We said there, took a stand, no plan B. And so this command performance concept is a way of saying no plan B. I'm putting it all into one race. And if you're racing a marathon these days with weather and all these other things, it can be difficult to put all the eggs in one basket and feel confident because you have a lot of other variables at play as well. So talk about overcoming that fear of putting all of your eggs in that one basket. So I don't know who said it. And I'm not sure I've heard this saying said many, many different times in different cultures from different people. 
all across the board. I think even George Carlin has had said something about this, who, by the way, is a personal hero of mine. Uh, but basically, failure is success in disguise, right? And I think George Carlin probably said it in a much more funny way. But basically, this concept that you need to fail, and failing is just a perception of an experience that you had. Of in our case in racing, you need to fail to even get a success. The only way you fail is if you put eggs in a basket. Um, in my opinion, the only way runners ever really get that is to put every egg in the basket. Um, and so fear, first of all, can be diffused greatly when you recognize that there is absolutely no such thing as failing. Um, that's a very hard concept for Western people to get. Um, we are totally all about the win we we don't we never are about the lose nobody else says it's a lose-lose proposition right it's a <laughs> fail fail proposition right. but as a coach i will tell you honestly i got zero fear of my athletes failing as long as i know that they're emotionally balanced human beings because i can clean up the mess that was made but if they don't make a mess it's really hard to clean it up and that's it you got to go be willing to fail and if you're willing and that's where the fear comes from right in our from your initial point Fear is coming from the fact that they think that who they are is going to be represented with a number on a page. And that's absolutely not true. And any human being that does the first steps we talked about in our mental training of setting a, a you know, knowing what your purpose is, getting set there, you'll recognize that that exact number isn't the most important thing. It's an important thing. Let's not diminish it. But it's not the most important thing. And so fear can be mitigated by number one, seeing success as a, a on a bedrock of failure you have to have small fails or big fails in order to learn the lessons you need to know to get to the next level and number two you need to be in a position where those big goals matter enough for you to learn from them and for them to be something and i i just think that it's a nor if we can get over this sort of feeling that we have that we have to succeed at every turn we we can you're not i mean training is a an exact example of that. I mean, I'm telling you, if you go into a marathon and you've had a great workout in every single race, I'm almost going to tell you that you're going to fail <laughs> epically because if you didn't have some small fails and some ways to readjust and figure out where you're at, it's going to be very hard to get there. So failing in training and many athletes that I coach, they're totally fine with failing in training. They don't like it. I'll, I'll be honest with you. None of them like it, but they're willing to hear me and listen to me after a race is over. When they failed, they're frequently inconsolable. And I'm like, this is just one step along a long, a long progression. As you talked about the athlete we just talked about, she's now capable of seeing it that way. It's 100% our right for her to be in that sort of really wrecked state post-race, not getting, she got what she wanted, but it still wasn't enough. Yep. You know, again, shame on Boston Marathon for not fixing that, in my opinion, but whatever, right. that's another topic. <laughs> but, but ultimately, she's still now at a point, a couple of weeks later, in that process, in that state where she's literally saying, no, that was a great thing to have happen. Now I'm more, I'm ready, girded for the sort of battle I'm going to have to go into the next time around. Um, so that's crucial and key. Fear is really just that experience of thinking that your personhood is wrapped up in your success or failure. Diffuse that bomb a little bit by having appropriate goals and appropriate vision statements, appropriate purpose statements, and recognizing that even failures are a way to get to the next place. And you're in a really good position for command performances to be the really edifying, incredibly powerful experiences. Now, one other thing about that. If you're somebody who doesn't want to fail, your success is never going to be a success. 
It's always going to be conditional. I guarantee it. This is a this is a rule of life. All right. If you don't eat shit sandwiches, you will not ever eat an ice cream sandwich. I promise you, you just won't. So you decide how you want it. You know, I I personally I've had way many way too many shit sandwiches as an athlete and as a coach, but I'm always hungry for my ice cream sandwich and. I'm going for it every single time with every athlete I coach, with everything that I've done as my as myself as an athlete. I will never fail to continue to say that the taste of bad is still it's the taste of good is always worth whatever taste of bad that there is. Honestly, if you can't wrap your brain around that and you don't believe that as a concept, we're not going to get across to you because that's the real concept. Right. And you have to be. You have to be willing to buy into that because the ice cream sandwich is oh so good. <laughs> yeah, that's my opinion. That's the why more, I use yeah. that analogy. Like the shit more sandwiches. You're willing to put yourself out there, the bigger and sweeter the result will be when it comes. The other thing I'll say is that it's a journey, and and training is as much a part of that journey as the destination race itself or the race itself. And people often lose sight of the fact that there are racing results, which are important. I'm not going to diminish them, but there are also training results. And you can get to the end of a big training cycle and absolutely blow up your race because mentally you just weren't there or whatever. But all the physiological changes that went with that cycle are still with you and will carry forward to the next one. So while you might have a failed race, if as long as you did the work to that point, then all of that training will carry with you and will eventually lead to a success down the road. I mean, every hero's story is based on the fact of failing. I think I heard recently somebody say, no one in America wants to hear a success story. They all want to hear every success story ever told in America is based on a failure story. You know, we, 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 that seems to have been a principle, a defining principle of our, per, of our, of our nation. We seem to be forgetting that. And we seem to start to think that the win is the only thing. But every great story in myth, in religion, in everything has been based on the fact of failing. Now, the other great principle there is process, as we've talked about before. And that's what you're alluding to here is that there is still process and being process oriented of seeing the grand picture. But that requires the vision and the wisdom to know that failing is not failing. It, it'll taste like a shit sandwich, but it's really <laughs> not. It's probably dirt. Or, or maybe it's a fig Newton, and you wanted a, and you wanted a, and you wanted an ice cream sandwich. You know, an ice cream sandwich <laughs> is a really, really good thing. So, you know, I, I do, I do agree. It is very important to talk about process as a part of the command performance because many people will hear that that's all there is, right? No, it is much bigger than that. You know, and that, and that we were talking about that long sort of progression upwards. Um, there are ups and downs in that, and that's part of the process. Process is still the key thing. Um, getting your head wrapped around that concept and putting the two things, you know, it's a juxtaposition. You know, it's, as we talked about, I said earlier, light and dark, ebb and flow. It's so there you go. For both physiological as well as mental reasons, we believe in the peak command performance and that you can only successfully do that two or three times a year max so that's principle number four principle number five which is really the foundation of rogue running is that group training is critical but i would say we don't have a monopoly on this principle if you look at the american success in distance running especially over the last decade it's largely beca because of 
these training groups that have started prop- popping up all over the country where athletes are training in groups of three to, to ten and sometimes more and getting the benefit of that group training. So embedded this is really two sub points. There's one usually with the group comes a coach and two, you know, with the group, obviously you have the people around you that can help you. So let's start with the coaching point. Why is it important to have a coach? Because we all have blind spots. Every one of us has blind spots. Every human being on the face of the planet sees they, we, we, our eyes the way we're created. We don't have eyes at the front of our head and the back of our head. So that means we're not going to see. No matter how much you turn your head, if you turn your head one direction, you're going to be missing on another spot. If you turn your another direction, you're going to be missing on another spot. It's, it's not possible for the human to be able to um, sort of cover all the bases at one time. And a coach is there to basically point out the blind spots, see that we have enough wisdom to know the basics of your sport, know basics of physiology and what's going on, and then hopefully get to know you enough for you to be able to help you find your way and take those blind spots and start shedding some light on them. And your coach is there not to be from the old school, um, hard ass, you know, suffer and die kind of view, but more along the lines of you're not perfect. You know, you're not perfect. So let's just, let's just talk about the non-perfection and the coach is there not to sort of highlight it, but just to bring attention to it where and when, and every coach has a different way of doing that. Um, and I think that whether your coach is a person you pay for, whether a coach is somebody who's volunteer, no, whether a coach is somebody you remember from high school, it doesn't really matter. They're, they're there to basically to shine a light on the things that you don't see. They're not there for the motivation. That's a fringe benefit. They're there to check your perspective and balance your perspective with what's actually happening on the road in a workout, in a race as it comes out, and to be sure that you're seeing a well-rounded, variable approach, varied varied experience of what's going to get ready to happen to you, either training or racing. And to me, it's super simple. Coach is there to make sure that you're looking at your blind spots. So that's important. Another benefit, in my pers- from my perspective, of having a coach is that it, it means you don't have to think as much. It takes some of the mental work out of the equation you know you are my coach we've talked about that on the podcast before I'm also a coach so theoretically I know all the things similar things that you know so theoretically you'd say well Chris you're educated enough as a coach to coach yourself well no because as you just said I have blind spots but two also because honestly don't want the work of coaching myself it's a lot of work to coach anyone and coaching yourself is I think a unique perspective but I can show up on a Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday and say, Steve, what do I do? And you tell me, and I go do it. Well, you're going to second guess if you're coaching yourself. <clears throat> it's very hard to have, um, I think I've said this on the podcast, I'm not sure, but a coach's job is to create a is to create a positive, in my opinion, is to create a great starting line experience. I cannot execute the race for you. All I can do is get you on the starting line feeling like you're ready to go. If you coach yourself, you're not going to have, you're going to have a, vi- a, a very, very rarely you're going to have an incredibly positive starting line experience. And the coach provides that. It, he says, take it on my shoulders. If you're, success- if you're successful in this race, you get all the credit. If you fail in this race, as your coach, I'll take all the blame. When that happens, it allows you to run free and allows you to go through the process of each step along the line of training. If you know your coach is going to put his money where his mouth is in terms of your race result, then you can be very confident if you do the work consistently. And they're, well, and they're a good coach and they know what they're doing and they've got the results. Then guess what? You're, you're, you're now provided with the wings to flap and to fly in the breezes at wherever you want. You don't have to decide on the direction that you're going to go. And you know that's, that is a crucial piece of it is that now – 
um, you've got somebody else to do that. Of course, you could do that from a book, but a book will not allow you to have um, a book doesn't see blind spots. You know, a book will just give you a path, but it won't be someone who walks on that path with you to help you make decisions at crucial points and where you go. Well, a book or a schedule that you downloaded from the Internet can't talk to you and figure out how you felt after that workout, how you're feeling generally, and maybe make adjustments to your next workout as a result or adjust your total mileage as a result. Anytime you or I write a macro for a group, we typically write it in five to six month chunks. And I would say 0% of the time, we actually execute that macro exactly as we wrote it. Because as we get into it, we learn things about how the group's dealing with it, about how individuals in the group are dealing with it, and or how the fitness is generally adapting in the context of the whole program that you decide, I need something different for this next day. And so very rarely is a macro that you might print out or get from a book going to stay static the entire schedule if you're doing it the right way. Yeah, I think so. You know, it, it takes a lot to have. It's really hard to be a coach. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. And it takes a lot to take that pressure. Um, I would, I would really, I really feel for those people who are self-coached, truly self-coached from start to finish, who are standing on starting lines, trying to get ready for races. Um, they are going to have to have dotted eyes perfectly and crossed T's perfectly. Um, but you know, I do think this will sound a little bit weird, and I'm, and I, and I hope that no one will suddenly say, you know, Sisson is, Sisson is saying gurus are good, right? No, but people need gurus <clears throat> people need leaders they need someone on the front end for them to sort of look up to to take pressure away and to look and to feel like there's something there and I know as uncomfortable as I am and anybody who knows me really closely personally knows I'm deeply uncomfortable with that sort of role of being a, a you know an, like the one who knows um I've done this for so long, I'm good at it, but it definitely is not something that I like to do. But I know it's part of my role, and so I fit it. I fill it as I, as, I, as I have to. But I think that for the athlete, that's another reason why a coach can be incredibly valuable. The more you believe in your coach, the more power they're going, you're going to be able to get from them, and the more result likely of great result you're going to get. Now, power there is a very, very sort of, like heavy word. And we'll talk about that in a future podcast about <laughs> what power is. But ultimately, you need someone who exudes that power, has that power over you, and you're willing to secede, to cede some of your your own volition to to follow what they're saying. Not because you're blind and you're and you just want to do it, but because it's it's more than that starting line experience I talked about. It's sort of next level to that, which is you need a leader. You need somebody to, to take it, and, and it's important for that process. Which brings to the point brings us to the point that if you're going to have a coach, you might as well trust your coach, or you better trust your coach. Otherwise, it's not going to be a very fruitful relationship. You know, I have some people that train in my group that don't listen to me, and I know that they're just not coachable. They show up and... Maybe they do the workout, but they do it at the pace that they want, or they race at times when I suggest that they not. And so they're uncoachable, and I kind of laugh in my head mentally sometimes, like, why are they even here paying me to coach them if they're not going to listen? 
but it's important to get the most out of that relationship to, as you say, cede a little bit of power to them, trust what they say, have the dialogue if you're not certain or if you think something should be different. The dialogue never goes away. You should always ask questions. You should always kind of engage in the back and forth if you're not sure about something. But you have to trust them. Otherwise, you might as well not be coached by them. Yeah, if you have a coach that doesn't listen, run away fast because their ego is way out of control. So, um, And that is a big problem in some cases with coaches. You know, Luckily, I think at Rogue, we, we, have, we, have, we have no problem with that. Um, many people will think I have an ego, but that's because that's what they want to see out of me. But I listen. I'm hearing what my athletes are telling me. I'm seeing them for who they are. Um, when you have that, it, it really creates a sort of symbiotic relationship where a, a person who is willing to be self-coached, as I say, every athlete should still be self-coached, but they should have a coach. Um, and if a coach won't be willing to listen to that athlete self-coaching themselves, then they don't need to have that person as a coach. Uh, that is that there are windows of time where it's shut up and run, right? I do say that occasionally, but that's really just just to shock and awe to get to get people to the position that you <laughs> need effect. to. Yeah, it's just for effect, just to get them where you need to get them to get them moving down the road. And you know, people still want Lombardi, right? You know, they they, they no matter who they are, even the millennials want Lombardi. So sometimes you got to yell at them. Sometimes you got to crack them upside the head, and they just want that. They expect that to be the role. But certainly, if if that's your if that's your situation consistently, that's a problem. But, you know, you said you wonder, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm down this road much further in terms of the years I've been coaching in terms of, uh, of, uh, of, of wondering why my athletes who are un- quote unquote uncoachable. Well, I think what's happening there is, is going to, is going to segue us into the next part of this conversation, which is they're there for one, re- the, the only other reason. And they're there for this, the second part of this, which is running with a group is, is so much more valuable to them. So they're probably dispositionally incredibly uncomfortable by the fact that they have to have quote unquote guru or coach. Right. And so maybe some of those folks, some of them are just jack wagons and there's nothing we can do about (laughs) it. Right. But that's probably about 15 to 20% of them. But the other 80% of those folks are just probably dispositionally uncomfortable with having a leader or being in that role. And so they're there, they're not for you. And they're there for the other people in the group. You know, I've said this many times with my group at team rogue, which is a really pretty advanced level recreational group it's it's i would i i i don't think there's another group in the country that's a recreational group that's as serious and as focused and as driven as my group is and who have gotten success but there are still people in that group that just want to be there for the group and honestly i think 75 to 80 percent i like to say all the time i'm a as a coach i'm a fringe benefit to these people running on a consistent basis with each other because the real magic is happening in that moment them running step to step running together. And I, I'm assuming we're going to talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so that was the perfect segue, Steve. You <laughs> stole my thunder. <laughs> running with people, and this is a central part of what we do here. If people come to us and they say, I want to be individually coach, or I just want a macro from a coach, that we say no, because that's not what we do think, or not how we do things. And we believe so strongly in the power of a group for at least two big reasons. One is accountability. When you know someone's waiting for you on a, at 5.30 a.m. and is going to miss you when you weren't there, then you you s- turn off the snooze button and you get up and you go. So accountability is critical. But then the second reason is finding others that can help push you to a new level is really, really important. Now, there's two sides to that equation. I always remind people, sometimes running a group is as much about being pushed as it is about being held in control. So there's two sides to that coin, but that is important as well. So those are the kind of two things I touch on as reasons why group training is important. What color would you add? Um, 
it sort of fits into your second point. Um, I just studied, they stated this to uh, Stephen Hemline, who's my assistant at Team Rogue, about one of the most important things about what we do at, in, in my group is that running in a group allows them to jump levels sort of sort of they can find this it's the only shortcut in my opinion that there really is in distance running because some of what they're not believing is mental is that they don't have a mod when you train by yourself you and you want to go from 345 to 330 if you don't have a model it makes it very difficult when you want in a group that has a two has multiple 230 marathoners um you know, scads of 250, sub 250 marathoners and literally dozens and dozens of people who are under, you know, under 320, you begin to start to realize really quickly that the limits that may be out there are really between your ears. Some see that, some don't. Um, it's really exciting when those athletes notice it, recognize it and begin to work towards that. But I think that that's sort of a sort of a corollary on the second point that you make was that you get to bypass the sort of logical general progression that people will make because you're in a group of people who limits are not there. Um, they're, they're training with pr sound training principles, but their coach is about saying, don't put a limit on it, um, which comes to sort of a third point, which is culture. This is yep. a huge, huge part of what happens in distance training. And I'm not talking about mental approach or anything else. There's a sign, when I coached at the University of Texas for seven years, Mac Brown was the head coach for the football team. There was a sign on the end of the, of the, of the, tr of the locker room. We all went to the same training room. It was super cool, it doesn't happen anymore. But it used to be you know, the golfers and the distance runners and everybody went to the same training room. And at the end of that training room, there's a sign that says, athletes are a reflection of their coach. That means culture. That they, you can call that whatever you want to, but at the end of the day, that's culture. And culture is the athletes and the coach in a group together. If you have not been a part of a culture and you're getting your culture out of a magazine or an online forum or a blog, you are missing out on one of the principal aspects of being a human being. And that is to feel the community of others doing the same thing that you're doing. I, that is that impact the, the experience that people have when they come to us to a rogue on a Saturday morning and they have 200, 300, 400 people all doing the same thing that they're doing. Um, it's an amazing, absolutely amazing feeling. And so culture is a big part of this group training too, because you don't want to let down your teammates. So there's the accountability piece of not letting yourself down, but there's the other flip side to that coin, which is I don't want to let my training partner down because I want to be a rep, a good representative of the group of people I'm training with, where, which I would say a good culture is incredibly important, you know, because then you, you have a team element. I mean, it's been fun. I've been kind of on the bench a lot this past year as someone who's had some injury struggles the last year, but in the last six months from, well, more than that, really from Chicago to now watching our group team rogue work in Chicago and then Houston and now getting ready for Boston. When you're out there in a race with your teammates in the race too, and your teammates cheering on the sideline, your teammates jumping in to help you pace at various times, it changes the game. It becomes a team sport versus an individual sport. And that's to me where the magic is. If you've never, whether it's in a workout or in a race, 
found a rhythm running with a group of five to ten people where suddenly running becomes effortless because somehow the energy of the group is making it so. If you haven't experienced that, then you are missing out not only on a fabulous, amazing, profound experience, but also on potential that's locked up in you because you haven't found that rhythm in the context of a group. So that's what draws me in and draws me back. It used to, I used to be a solo runner. I was, I'm an introvert oddly. And mostly running for me was an outlet for myself to kind of reset, get away from people, get my own head, think things through. But now I rarely run on my own because I'm addicted to the magic of that group culture and it not just it's not just sharpening as a runner it's sharpening as a person because you find that there are no mass at 5:30 in the morning or or 6 p.m at night in 100 degree weather here in austin there are no masks and as a result you find yourself growing not just as a runner but as a person in ways you wouldn't expect and that's magic you know as a young man i read um ann ryan rand's books i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing her name right on ron or you know, she had this collectivist theory, and, and maybe may, I was required to read some piece of literature as a senior in high school, and I read The Fountainhead, and then I went ahead and read Atlas Shrugged, and, you know, that viewpoint, that sort of worldview is that the individual is the king, and that the individual can transcend all. As I've, And I, that was a super, super exciting thing to read when you're an 18 or 19-year-old young man. Um, as I've aged, I've realized I don't know while I think there are few in our world that can self can transcend as a solo artist or a solo human, uh, they, they are, they are, they are exceedingly rare. Almost everyone needs a culture or a group of others to have around to help lift that transcendence to transcend. Yes, it's an individual journey, but it has to be done in a group of like-minded others. Um, MLK could not have done, Martin Luther King could not have done what he did. He could not have made that impact if he didn't have a community with which he was leading and communicating with. Com that he was, he just happened to be that vocal edge of what they were doing. I, I think that in, in a sense, you know, we, we, you cannot be your best self if you're not doing it with others. That's, that's, I'm older and that's how I view it now at this age. But I see that value. It's exactly what you're talking about, Chris. That, that value there is, is it's, it's, you know, as I say, people are joining my group, I think, primarily for that reason. And they just happen to have, in my opinion, a pretty damn good coach to go along with it. But right. I would tell them it was worth more than the money they pay on a consistent basis just to have that group that's going to show up 530 in the morning, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, consistently. When you find that, believe me, the magic that we have here at Rogue you can have it anywhere you want. It rogue isn't rogue isn't sort of sort of, you know cornering the market on this. In fact, we would we would love for there to be more of these in every town in America. Um, but you you have to recognize the value of it, and um, and you know you need a leader too. So you got to have the coach, and you've got to have the community, right? Uh, this podcast we're consistently talking about how the individual can do the things that they need to do. Today we're sort of balling it up in a little bit of ball, saying, "Well, you can, but to do it the best, to be your best self, you need you need others." And if you're listening and you have a group, you already know what we're telling you. If you don't have a group and you're in Austin, we recommend coming to check us out or, frankly, checking out any of the other great groups. Austin is lucky in the fact that we have a lot of options. 
Gilbert's Gazelles is one. And so Phenomenal as, as Steve said, we do not seek to corner the market on this. We, we believe that what we do is, is powerful and magical, but there are others doing it well. So find a group, give it a shot, trust a coach and see what happens in the magic of a group. And if you're not in Austin, look for, look for a group that might be similar or send us a note. Sometimes we know groups in other cities, whether they're in Texas or outside of Texas. So we might be able to point you in the right direction, but give it a shot. We promise you, you will not regret it. So with that, we will wrap our series, our first completed series, uh, this series on training principles. And again, if you haven't already, please go back and check out episodes one, seven and 10. We are happy to close this one off with 15. I think we put a fitting bow on it, Steve. Yeah, don't worry. We'll still talk about training. We will. We just won't <laughs> talk about big, giant, grand training principles. Well, maybe we will. We have a tendency. <laughs> we to, probably will. We have a tendency towards hyperbole. So, <laughs> All right. So thanks again for listening. As always, you can check us out on our website, roguerunning.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Rogue Running. If you're in Austin, come see us. Otherwise, we'll talk to you soon.